Alright, are you ready, Brendan? I'm ready, Sean. Alright, let's do this. go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage, against the dying of the light. Welcome to There and Back Again. And again. I'm Brendan. I'm Sean. And today we are doing things a little bit differently. Sean and I are sitting next to each other in the same room for the first time in our long history of podcasting together for the last few months. Yes. I mean, we've sat in a room together before. This is our first time recording together. Sean is down here in Indianapolis because we did something very special today. We went and saw Interstellar on IMAX here in downtown Indy. And so now we are recording this episode and we're going to talk about one of our shared top 10 movies, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. After seeing it today, not for the first time, of course, but... First time watching it together and watching it in the special IMAX format, the way it was filmed to be viewed, the way it was meant to be taken in by the audience. It was a truly an incredible experience seeing this movie in this type of theater, the largest screen possible in this format. So this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every, I, this movie in particular, I saw opening weekend, I think you did too, in IMAX. I don't know if it was opening weekend, but first time I saw it was IMAX. And it. I remember reading a lot prior to seeing it that like you should see this movie in IMAX. You mm-hmm. have to see this movie in IMAX. It's made for it. It's filmed that way. And then after seeing it that way, it just really drove that point home that it was, I don't want to say it's the essential way to see it because you can watch it at home. You can watch it on a standard screen and be fine. But after seeing it today in IMAX, it, it did further drive that point home. Like this is to ex- have the full experience of mm-hmm. the the type of audio that's in an IMAX theater, the size of the screen and the scope of it. It really drives the impact of the film just even more. And yeah, the the audio is a real piece to it, is a real great piece to it. The, the score mm-hmm. and just the different things. Like I remember even reading that like, you know, the, the people complain a lot about how, like, in Nolan's films, like, the audio is often drawn drowned out by, mm-hmm. like, the score or, like, effect, different effects and stuff. Yeah. And I don't think that's on an accident. I think he's doing it, those things on purpose. And so people have complained about it, but it's not, like, a mistake in the, the audio mix and it's not a mistake in the theater's audio equipment. It's just the way that he likes to do things. And in this one, I think it's it kind of makes it part of the experience of everything that's going on within the story in the film. And so mm-hmm. they, 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 whatever mix they had at the theater today, and especially the way that IMAX does their sound, 
it just makes it so perfect. Yeah. And that certainly was intentional for this movie. And yeah, I mean, for, if anybody is unfamiliar with like, for like the true IMAX experience, you walk into this room and it's the room itself feels smaller than a normal movie theater, but I I, like, just like front to back, but the Mm -hmm. screen is like, I don't know, however many stories tall it, it is a massive screen from the floor to the ceiling, so much bigger than a regular movie theater screen would be. And yeah, like you said, like between that screen and the sound, I mean, it's, it's a fully immersive experience. And for a movie like Interstellar or a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies being actually filmed with IMAX cameras on this like 70 millimeter film. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not enough of a technical film junkie to like explain all of that specifically, but like there, you can see the difference between like, there are scenes that are not filmed with IMAX cameras because like for dialogue scenes, the, the cameras are too loud. So they just use regular cameras. But anytime a scene has been filmed on that IMAX camera with that special kind of film, it like the screen goes from being maybe two thirds full to completely full. You can always tell because you see the screen get filled like literally from floor to ceiling. And it's usually for the bigger like action shots and wide shots of different, you know, landscapes or whatever it is. And, you know, of course in this movie, there's lots of shots of like, you know, the, like the space ships, you know, flying around or whatever. And so it really is just like, unlike any other film viewing experience, getting to see it in this type of a theater compared to watching in a normal one or watching at home. And you mentioned immersive, like that's really the best word to describe it is like mm-hmm. it, it fully draws you in to the point where like you forget that you're sitting in a movie theater to an extent because mm-hmm. you're just fully enveloped in everything you're hearing and seeing. And especially when it's in those IMAX shots, it really just draws you in. And, you know, they did, whether it was interior shots or exterior shots, they tried as much as possible to use the IMAX cameras mm-hmm. to the point of the cinematographer even adapting one of the cameras to be used almost as a handheld in, inside. And so you can fully see the intentionality of a lot of things that they did to make it a full experience. You know, you're not just watching a story unfold, but you're truly experiencing everything that they're trying to have portrayed on screen along with the characters to almost like keep up with them, to keep that pace and stuff and the intensity of what's going on. And you, you feel that through, so like through the shots and stuff, but you feel that through the score we talk about score a lot just because it's a, it's a big part of a film and when it's done really well, it, it elevates the film and when it's done poorly, it kind of feels just like dead space and, you know, useless for the film at all. But in this, in this one in particular, because of the way the audio is used and the way it's mixed it, again, it just adds something to every scene and makes certain scenes very memorable. And I mean, we can probably just sit here and talk about each scene that was highlighted or, or heightened by the score itself. But obviously this isn't just a score podcast. So we're going to talk story too, but right. But yeah, but, I was just going to say that. Yeah. in pretty much any scene that we'll talk about, we will probably also mention the score for that particular scene. But yeah, you know, it's especially a movie like this where there's like, you know, you're in a ship and you're flying and when you have that perspective, like you're like you're in the ship, this type of experience, it literally makes you feel like you're you're right there with them, flying into the wormhole or you know 
going down the the giant wave, you know, as you get lifted up and start to fall down and those things. There's so many times where it's like with that perspective in that immersive experience, it's like you, you really feel like you're there. And especially like, and you know, it's that sound too. Like you feel it in your chest, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's so loud. And deep. Um, yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's so cool. And so, and speaking of, of those things, like, you know, we generally like to, to mention if, if a movie has garnered any, uh, award awards or honors, you know, this was written and direct was, it was directed by Christopher Nolan, written by Christopher and his brother, Jonathan, who's been involved with a lot of Chris's projects, but it did win one Oscar for visual effects, which absolutely deserved. Then we can get into a little more of the specifics of why as we go on, but it was also nominated for best score Hans Zimmer, which is a travesty that it did not win. And then as we, you know, talked about like sound and things like it also got nominated for sound mixing and sound editing as well as production design. And that's, you know, for me, the things that stand out the most about this movie more so than any acting performance or plot or whatever, which are nothing bad about any of those. But I remember my first takeaway after seeing this movie the first time, even not having seen it on IMAX, just on a regular screen was like, this was one of the most visually stunning movies I had ever seen. Mm -hmm. And then of course the score, that pipe organ, like really just stood out to me from the first time. So certainly all those nominations well-deserved it's, you know, too bad they couldn't get more wins, especially Hans Zimmer. But I mean, he you know, he he's... he won previous to this for Inception. Did he win? Inception? He did. He did win Inception. Oh, which again, like very deserving, especially for his long history of work. I did not know that. If you if you look it up, and I was thinking me, I'm gonna be he embarrassed, maybe but... had nominated was nominated for. I feel like Inception was his win, but and very well deserving for Inception because I absolutely love that score. This one would have been another highlight if he would have won that too because you mentioned the pipe organ. It it is the the thing in this particular score that really elevates it and sets it apart from his others. Yes, because I don't I don't recall hearing it prior to this and his other scores that he's done for for Nolan and and his other movies and stuff. But it it does something to affect like the grand size of what's going on. Yeah, in each scene, like whether it's like an emotional hit in particular, like when Matthew McConaughey's character Coop is is leaving the farm. Mm-hmm. to go on the mission and it just like comes in as the truck's driving out, you know, yeah. but also the scenes where you're first like approaching gargantuan, the mm-hmm. black hole. And you're just seeing those wide shots of the spacecraft, like passing Saturn mm-hmm. and going that, you know, and it just kind of is, I don't know what it is, but there's something about the pipe organ that really just mm-hmm. kind of makes you feel this is a big thing. Yeah. This is huge. This You feel like the vastness of what's happening and the vastness of space. And I love it how, how a composer can do that, can pick a specific instrument to say, like, this will make you feel something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's a, he is a genius. Yeah. And, and part of it is, you know, obviously the, the composer is a huge part of it, but there's also like, you know, the composer is doing what the director is asking them to do. Right. And, you know, credit goes to, to Nolan as well, because he was, was specifically directed Hans Zimmer to kind of do away with some of the stuff that he had kind of become known for, like in the Dark Knight movies or Inception. 
he was like, you know, like just the, a lot of like the string instruments or like the big drums and stuff, you know, kind of switching that up. And uh, which, and speaking of Inception, I'm sorry that he he did not win. I just saw that. Yeah, he, he was nominated. His his other win, other than Dune, was Lion King, which was also well deserved. Sure, but, sure. But you know, and in in giving him direction for what to do, he didn't really tell him anything about the plot. Mm. Like he gave him a piece of paper that was kind of more of like to kind of it was meant to kind of invoke the feelings about like that parent child relationship that is so central to this film amongst all of the science and everything else and that's you know that's what zimmer came up with and it's obviously so brilliant well Um, it was like the score that he wanted his story or the story he wanted his score to tell yeah like along with the movie and Mm -hmm. yeah and and it just it fits so well it's 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 subtle when it needs to be subtle and it obviously gets goes real big when it needs to go big. And it, it just makes you feel so many things throughout the course of this movie. And I wanted to mention part of like where this score really kind of like embedded itself into my life or brain was when I was going through paramedic school, that score became my study music mm. literally every single night when I would sit down to study, I would put on that score and listen to it. And, you know, like I said, that was one of the main things that stuck with me after watching the movie the first time, but then I've listened to it so much outside of, you know, watching the movie. And now, even though I'm not studying for anything, I still like to put it on and listen to it. And now my, my kids have heard the soundtrack because they're really interested in seeing the movie. It's like, yeah, you're, you're still a little too young for it, but I can't wait till they're a little bit older and, and we can watch the movie and hopefully get a chance to go back and, and see it on IMAX again. That would be incredible. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is definitely one that I would love my kids to see, but I want them to also get it too a little bit mm-hmm. and not just, I, I'm sure there are movies that we watch as kids that like we got them later as adults. Like, Oh, I, I totally understand the story now, mm-hmm. but this is one that would be like, I would have to be trying to talk through and explain this stuff as yeah. we're going and I don't want to interrupt <laughs> the movie. So yeah, let me be clear. Do not ask questions during the movie. I will do my best to answer any questions you have after the movie. Right. But yeah. And and to be honest, like the first time I saw it, I was not, I did not feel fully like I fully understood the plot or that I was fully satisfied, at least with my understanding of the plot. I remember being really bummed. I mean, you, the viewer are just like Cooper, like you want him to go back to his kids. But I remember being so disappointed that like his reunion with Murph was Murph is like, you know, 90 years old on her deathbed, basically surrounded by her own family. And so it felt a little disappointing at first. Like you want to see him be able to reunite with Murph at 10 years old, how he left her. And obviously, you know, that can't happen. You know, he asked Brand at one point, like, you know, is there something we could do to like basically reverse time or whatever? And she says, no, that's not, not possible. So I, that's kind of how I felt going away from the movie, like stunned by the visuals and the score, but plot wise, I was like, I felt a little unsatisfied, but every time I've watched it since then, it's like, you know, just subsequent viewings. It's like, okay, more things start to make sense. And now it's like, okay, I, I, I get what's going on, you know, from the first time with like everything about the ghost, you're like, oh yeah, he's the ghost. And you see how everything, you know, ends up resolving the way it does and i love it now for for those reasons as well as all the other things that we've already talked about yeah 
Yeah, you feel a bit, I don't want to say cheated, but you feel like he gets a little cheated. Because the one thing that he does get is the one thing that he talks with his father-in-law about is that he he never got to really fully realize his potential or use utilize his skills right. as he, they were trained to be with his engineering skills and with NASA. And so he finally gets to do that through these missions that obviously for the human race take decades, but for him is short-lived. But then he has this short reunion with, with Murph, which, you know, credit to him and the actress for, for playing that so well. I think it's Ellen Burstein. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's one plot wise. That is one of the things that I remember seeing and going, well, that was, that was pretty short and not very mm-hmm. satisfying. And then he goes off to be with Brant. And I mean, I, I get plot wise why that makes sense, but yeah, it, it does. I'm always, when it comes to Nolan's movies, I'm always disappointed to find that there are people that don't like it. <laughs> and that's just because I, there's so much that I like about it. Sure. But especially with this one, I think it's one of his lowest rated ones. You know, we don't always go by the Rotten Tomato score because that's very, uh, you, you can't bank things on that or yeah. tell how good a movie is without, you just have to see it for yourself. But sometimes you look at those scores just kind of as comparisons. Mm-hmm. And it's one of his lowest rated ones on there. It might even be his lowest. Yeah. And I guess I'll say, I don't know what Tenet's at. Tenet's not really terribly popular, but. Uh, at least among critics, but it was pretty low. And I think it's at 73%. Hmm. And for all that it packs into it with the score and the visual effects and just the, the grandeur of what it does and the, the risks that it takes and the, the, the accuracy. I mean, people always talk about the accuracy of this one because of how much they consulted with theoretical physicists mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Like Kip Thorne. Yeah. yeah. You know, plus what, the originality. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can talk about so many different space travel movies, and this one stands far above all the ones I've seen. And I've seen, you know, we've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey and all that, and it, it I don't know, to me it blows them out of the water. But maybe that has a lot to do with the visual effects of it. Yeah, maybe. I, I guess out of Nolan's movies, it's not the highest selling as far as plot goes. But yeah. it, there is still quite a bit of great plot in it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the issues that people have with it kind of come in the sort of the final act, you know, when it comes to like him going into the black hole and ending up in the, like the Tesseract and finding that he was the ghost. And then the, like just the, the idea that like, it was like, like love is the thing that transcends dimensions. And I, I, I feel like that was the thing that people just maybe just didn't land with people for like, for such a scientifically based movie to kind of end on, something like that maybe just didn't yeah didn't didn't agree with people or people didn't agree with it but again it took me a few times watching it to really like understand where they were going with it but then like once i once i kind of grasped what they were trying to say i was like okay yeah i i get it right yeah i don't i don't have any problems with that like it it ultimately is about a father trying to get back to his kids Mm -hmm. you know and trying to trying to save the world for his kids, but also get back to them. And it's just through that lens. It's a really beautiful movie. Yeah. Beautiful for a lot of the reasons that we've mentioned already. Yeah. Beautiful also because it's a really outstanding cast. Oh yeah. All the way through. Okay. I guess we'll bring up a few points that it's not all the way through, but there (laughs) are quite a few, quite a few highlights in the casting. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you got Matthew McConaughey, which was, you know, this movie came out in the middle of his reconnaissance, I think they called it, mm-hmm. you know, and his rising 
popularity or back into popularity. And, and so it was at the height of that, you know, and him really buying into a whole lot of dramatic roles and he did really great with this. You got Sir Michael Caine, obviously showing up in a Nolan film like he usually does, but yeah. playing, I would say, almost a larger role in this one than he typically does. Well, I guess, he, you know, as Alfred, he was pretty central. Yeah, his his performance in this movie, and he wasn't asked to do as much, I would say. Like, it's it's definitely not, like, an Alfred-level performance. Mm-hmm. But it, it was it was fine. Like, he's, you know, he's Michael Caine. But yeah, like, it's, you know, certainly Inception, his, his role in that one is very small. And then in the follow-up to this and Dunkirk, you know, he only had a small, like, you know, voiceover role as, like, a radio man or something. Right. But... Yeah, Matthew McConaughey is excellent in this movie. You know, there's several scenes where he's showing a lot of emotion in regards to his kids. You know, the scene where he's trying to make things right with Murph before he leaves. And then the scene after Miller's Planet, the water planet, where 22 or 23 years have passed. And he gets sees all these messages that he's missed from his kids over all those years and you know just the way that he reacts to those like really really strong performance yeah so we got him michael kane you got as his kids i forget the name of the little girl who plays murph mackenzie foy mackenzie foy yeah you've got uh, young timothy or early timothy chalamet playing (laughs) his son tom yeah john lithgow playing his father-in-law yeah who's great yeah i love all the scenes of him and Coop just like talking like on the porch or whatever. Yeah. I think they're really good. They had just good chemistry and like the conversations they had. Mm-hmm. I really liked those. Yeah. And his, yeah, he had his father-in-law just had such a great perspective on everything. Mm-hmm. Really just speaking truth to a lot of the situations. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Wes Bentley is one of the NASA scientists, especially as Doyle who going on, goes on the mission with them. Yeah. I forget who plays Rom Romilly. Yeah. He's good though. <clears throat> yes. Good performance. And then a surprise appearance by Matt Damon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's not really he wasn't really advertised uh-uh. or marketed as being in the movie. And yeah, he has quite the role here. And then and then we've got Jessica Chastain playing the older version of Murph. We've got Casey Affleck playing the older version of Tom. Topher Grace shows up at NASA and yep. and and then Anne Hathaway. Right. That that would be our our missed casting call here. Or like not the greatest yeah, of the cast. I don't even know if it was a missed casting. I mean, you know, she was she had just been in the Dark Knight Rises and she was great as Selena Kyle. But yeah, I just I feel like I don't know, it's just sort of something about her performance in this movie I don't love. She's not bad, but I don't know for some, especially like the more emotional scenes when she's talking about Edmonds and I don't know, for some reason it just, her performance just kind of rubs me wrong, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Yeah. I mean, that's why I would call it miscast. I, 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 we always understand the fact that Nolan loves to work with people again. A lot of directors do. Mm -hmm. They love when they, they find an actor they can really work with and jive with and collaborate with. And he might've, gosh, was, I mean, this was prior to Dark Knight Rises. No, it was after. It was after. Yeah. Dark Knight Rises. And so obviously they'd found that they can work together and she played Selena Kyle so well. And we already talked about that. Yeah. With this one, it just really felt like, I don't know. It's like, it's like either she didn't fully buy into it 
or something, mm-hmm. or it was just hard to play yeah. and hard to portray. But yeah, I, I didn't love it. I just could have, it could have been different. Yeah. It wasn't, for me, it wasn't the whole like love plot. It was just the portrayal. Mm-hmm. And she's been great in so many other things. Yeah. She's, she's a very talented actress and she brings so much to so many other roles that she's been in. This just didn't seem like a, a highlight of her career. Right. But I don't think it didn't really bring the movie down. No. It just didn't stand out and it didn't. It's a nitpick. Yeah. If anything. It didn't it's bring anything drag. out. You know, it didn't drive anything forward or say like, oh, yes, I really resonate with that. Yeah. But anyway, she is part of a all-star cast, obviously. So Yeah. And to make sure we give credit, it's David Gayasi, Gayasi, who plays Romilly. Yes, who so, played Romilly so well. Just to uh, make sure. He really liked out there. so many people in a lot of Nolan's movies, a lot of movies, you know, a minor role, a minor character, but really just embracing that. And for him having to embrace being a voice of reason on the crew, but also portraying isolation and loneliness, you know, a little bit yeah, and anxiety. I thought he did that really well. He does. Yeah. He does a great job with that. The other actor I, I don't think you mentioned is David Oyelowo. Oh, he's got a short um, scene as the principal. It's Yeah, it's a very short scene, but this is the same year that he played Martin Luther King in Selma. That's right, yeah. So this is a, a big year for him, even though his part in this one was, was pretty minor. Minor, yeah. Great scene, though. The, you know, the, the thing about the, the, pants. the waistline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it takes two, two numbers to measure your... Yep. Measure your own butt, but one score to judge my son's future. Right. That's a great line. There's, you know, there's several like little moments of humor like that. And this, this of course comes before the movie gets real heavy anyway, but you know, all the, the things with, with Tars and kind of the sense of humor and the honesty, the settings and things, those are, those are funny, but. That to me was such a huge you know, and I know we kind of want to talk about the film kind of going from beginning to end a little bit, but one of the highlights of this one that again, separates it from other movies. I know a lot of these space movies have like robots and they're, mm-hmm. you know, like each one tries to do robots uniquely and creatively. This one, man, what they did with these creating these robots and giving them personalities and the design and the movement, mm-hmm. I, man, it really like, it is such a standout in this movie. When yeah. I and I forget it every time. Every time I watch this movie, I get to the part where him and Murph are looking for the hidden facility or whatever. Yeah. And they're at the gate and Tars shows up for the first time and you don't see mm-hmm. it at first. Yeah. But then when they start showing him inside the the facility and he's like walking around for the first time, I was like immediately sold on the robot concept. Because <laughs> I don't think that they didn't really they showed it a tiny bit in the trailers. Oh man! And you didn't really know what you were looking at yet because mm-hmm. you didn't hear the voices or anything like that, and like hear like the human to robot interaction and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, the different times that they shift into different shapes in order to do a particular thing, or you know, they these arms kind of come out of them in order to pick something up or move something around. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, I I guess we you know speaking about the cast, the voice of Tars Bill Irwin, he's a very talented but also kind of a bit actor in a lot of stuff. Like you see him in stuff and you don't really know like, Oh, that's Bill Irwin. You don't really say that, Yeah. but he is very good at physical comedy a lot of the time. And he's 
he's got a very recognizable voice. But yeah, for, for this one, like Christopher Nolan had to ask him to do a lot. You're the voice of it, but if you ever like looked at like the behind the scenes stuff for this one, mm -hmm. for those robots, like, and then he also kind of puppeteered the robot. Yeah. Which is, that's very involved for an actor to say, like, I want you to be in my movie. Oh, great. Like, I'm going to have a lot of like interaction with other actors. Like, kind of, <laughs> you're going to be behind like a metal object and yeah. be moving it with your feet and your arms and also providing the voice. But that's about, that's what we need from you. Well, and that's, you know, in classic Nolan fashion, the robots and so many other things are done practically as much as right. possible instead of everything just being CGI. You know, that's, I think, another reason why the, the Oscar, you know, they, the one that they won for visual effects, you know, of course, is, is well-deserved. But yeah, the TARS and CASE, really, really well done. Kind of, it does feel like a unique, a unique take on robots in a space travel movie and they're you know I, I i like the fact that they have normal voices and they're not like mm -hmm. robot voices i feel like that could get a little for them to have so much dialogue could get a little old or annoying if they were you know always just speaking robotically but it really does give them so much more of a personality and makes them feel like a true character and not just a machine or a tool you know right so and on the before we we should mention, I don't even think we kind of passed over the the movie came out November seventh, twenty fourteen, and you know we usually like to talk about our first time seeing the movie. We have a little bit, but one of the things for me that that stands out about this was my oldest son Jack. He was born October ninth of twenty fourteen, so he wasn't even a month old when this movie came out. And you know, of course, there'd been a lot of build up to it. I was very excited to see it. This was like a you know, something where I kind of had to find a, a time where I could, could get away to see the movie, you know, with having a newborn at home. But, you know, it was early on enough that like we still had, you know, like my mom or my wife's mom, you know, was, was around. So I was able to, to go and see it. But I didn't even think there really was like a, a true IMAX screen around in Louisville because I had, I had tried to see Dark Knight Rises on IMAX. And it was not a real IMAX theater. It was a LIMAX. So I was very disappointed and upset about. So that's part of the reason why I didn't didn't see Interstellar in that format. And I was the first time I saw it in true IMAX was three years ago when no new movies were coming out because of COVID. The IMAX theater here were they were showing a bunch of Nolan's old movies in getting ready for Tenet to come out in I believe September of 2020. Mm. So then, you know, of course this year they announced they were going to be screening it again and got very excited and obviously were able to able to get you down here so we could see it together. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool when you sent that, that listing for the fact that they were going to be showing interstellar and then it was, it was nuts to see the reaction from other people too, because oh yeah, this particular theater that we saw it at, they had one showing initially and then it sold out and then they had to have some other showings that same weekend, yeah. which sold out yeah. and then they had to add more showings in those same days. And yeah, it, it was, it's been crazy. I mean, our theater obviously was packed. Every seat sold out. People yeah. actually clapped at the end of this one. Yeah. Which I I hadn't had in my prior interstellar experiences. No, I've never been a clapper at the end of a movie. Like, no, you, cause... Do, you do a whole episode on that. There's plenty of theater reactions that. Shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if 
if somebody who was involved in the making of the movie was there, then maybe I would clap. Sure. But like, who were we applauding? The projectionist? Okay, <laughs> I guess. I mean, it, it's... Who's going to hear this applause? It's a very unique job to be the IMAX right. projectionist. I don't know. Maybe a, somebody was there and we didn't know it. But... I, who knows? But yeah, it, it is kind of funny. But yeah, it's from, they went from having the one screening on Saturday to I think they ended up three three screenings per day, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday because the demand was so ridiculous and every, every single show sold out. So there's, you know, as, as, as much as we, you know, you talked about how it's a low, low rated film relative to his other films on, on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, like they're still there, especially seeing a movie like this on the IMAX screen. Like they're still a very high demand and high regard for, for this cinematic experience. Right. I feel like what you said earlier too, is like, I feel like there would be a better reception to it now. If people, if a lot of those reviews weren't just written off of a one-time viewing, Mm -hmm. I think it takes a lot to fully appreciate it. Just like, I mean, just it's similar with inception. We'll talk about this when we talk about inception, but you, you see it once and you go all like, wow, Mm -hmm. with inception, but you don't get everything. Yeah. You know, and, mm-hmm. it, and it takes a little bit to kind of like read up on it. And, and then when you do kind of understand a little bit more and then you watch it again, it resonates differently. So yeah, I feel like that it would have been the case with this one. And this one, I feel like also kind of gained a following after the fact too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it would be really interesting to know like, okay, of all the people that would say they didn't like Interstellar, how many got to see it on IMAX? Right. And how would seeing it on IMAX in that fully immersive experience, how would that change their feelings on the movie? Like, even if you don't love how the plot ends up, like even just that experience with the visuals and the sound and everything, how would that change your like, okay, I may not, I may still not have liked how the story ended up, but like that was still a very fun movie going experience. Just, you know, sitting in that theater. Cause I think Tenet was that way for a lot of people. It was like, people were like, I didn't even try to understand what was going on, but it was still a fun movie. Just Mm -hmm. a giant action movie blowing up a jet and, you know, whatever else was going on in that one. Like, yeah, I look forward to rewatching that one and talking about it sometime down the road. But yeah, it really is like seeing these movies the way they were meant to be seen. I think really, really makes a big difference. Not that, you know, we shouldn't try to, you know, enjoy the plot or make sense of it or whatever, but I think for, for this movie in particular, it's yeah. just a, a really unique experience. Yeah. We should also mention this was Nolan's first collaboration with a new cinematographer, Hoyt Ben Hoytema. Yeah. Having, um, having previously worked with Wally Feister. Yeah. And then Wally went off and tried to do his own thing mm-hmm. and, I, and the director's chair and didn't yeah. go as well. But then from then on out, you have Nolan working with Hoyt. Yeah. And yeah, still, still to this day, that's still who he's, he's working with as his DP. And it really, I mean, I don't feel like Nolan's missed a beat as far as his movies go when that, I mean, this is, again, this movie is, is incredible as far as the cinematography and everything, especially what they're able to do. Like there's so many scenes where you, it's like kind of this perspective of the ship, but it's kind of off to the side. You can see like they have a camera like mounted on the ship or under the ship. Or maybe it's a miniature. And I know another thing they did was like they they produced the the visual effects first, like anything that was going to be CGI. 
So that way, like if an actor was like looking out the window of the spaceship out at, at earth or something like they were actually seeing that being projected on a screen outside their, their set instead of just looking at a green screen. So they had actual things that they could be reacting to, which I think is just, is really cool. Like, obviously we're just, we're a couple of Nolan fanboys, but I mean, there, there are reasons why, you know, just right. the, some of those things that he does to really give his actors the most authentic experience possible, mm-hmm. I think is, is part of why he's such a great filmmaker. Yeah. Well, in particular with this one too, with, I remember McConaughey saying that prior to working with Nolan on this one, he had this perception that Nolan was like a big, just stiff perfectionist Mm -hmm. and then found out that he's more of a collaborator and he's kind of okay with like mistakes and the little inconsistencies and working through those with actors and stuff. So he definitely, obviously with the relationships that he's formed with actors, he seems like he's just such a great director to work with Mm -hmm. not to work for but to really work with and he's a good collaborator and yeah yeah absolutely you know one thing i i wanted to mention about the score i saw a video i think it was like a a tiktok or something like han zimmer has a tiktok and so i've like looked through his videos before a lot of them were were about dune because that was his most recent big thing but there was one where like somebody asked him like what's what's the favorite score he's ever composed and he said it was interstellar And I think it is, you know, part of what we talked about with kind of the motivation behind the way he composed it was, you know, it's very personal because it was a lot of like based off of his parental relationship with his kids and every like kind of the the emotion and the meaning behind it, aside from just the plot of the movie or whatever. So I I thought that was really cool because I agree. I think it's his best score. Yeah. And that's saying something because his body of work is incredible. It is his best. I, I would I would argue that an Inception comes in the second place for me personally. I think I probably but, have to agree. Yeah. But and even Nolan says that this is his favorite of Hans in, in the movies that he's worked with him on. Yeah. yeah. So I mean that says a lot. That does say a lot. He he does he did a lot with this score to really set it apart from a lot of the things that he's done. Yes. It, it's definitely his. When you hear it, you know that's Hans Zimmer, but. Uh, with a lot of like we talked about a lot of things that he added into it and the unique instruments that he put into it really just sets it apart Mm -hmm. so to kind of get into the the plot of the movie you know we were kind of set in this futuristic world we don't know it's it's not clear exactly how far into the future it is it's not like crazy far well i mean i I did read that 2067 but was that ever stated in the movie not stated it's more of like a background information mm-hmm. kind of thing but yeah 2060s yeah and you know but of course in in some ways it is it is in the future but in, in some ways it it feels you know things are more like rustic because they're running out of resources and you know donald talks about in one of their conversations about like when he was growing up it seemed like a new thing a new toy or gadget or whatever was being made every day and when i was a kid it felt like they made something new every day some gadget or idea like every day was christmas but six billion people just try to imagine that and every last one of them trying to have it all this world isn't so bad and that you know led to this age of excess that kind of led to their resources being exhausted and now we're in this this situation where they either have to find 
a way to relocate the people of earth to another home or, you know, they're just, they're going to die. They're going to starve and suffocate because it's like the dust bowl all over again. And corn is the only food resource that's left. And I'm assuming it's never really stated specifically and you never see any animals, but I'm assuming like there's not really any animals like cattle or whatever, because, you know, first of all, if, if there's not even enough resources to feed humans, they're not going to use those re resources to feed cattle or, you know, other animals. And obviously just in the environment with all the dust and everything and like water resources are probably depleted. So I'm right. guessing the animals population is significantly diminished as well as the human population. But, you know, we, we get introduced to the character of, of Cooper by his, his dream where it's like a, you know, a crash. And then we see that he's a farmer. And so it's kind of like kind of a juxtaposition of like, here's who this guy was or was supposed to be, but here's the world he lives in. And so this is what he has to do instead. And he's like this brilliant pilot and engineer and, but he is, he's using his abilities in a practical way to help society the way that it needs. So he's like, you know, he's using his genius on like combines instead of right. spacecraft or whatever. Repurposing old equipment to yeah. do new jobs. And the first scene where the score really hits you is the cornfield chase scene. And I feel like this is... You know, you, you kind of talked about how Interstellar kind of developed a little bit more of a following, you know, in the years after it was released. I feel like this the score is kind of similar. Like, I see, like, there's, like, videos and stuff on social media all the time that use the Interstellar music. And this this one in particular, the, the score that's over the cornfield chase scene and videos upon videos upon videos of people playing the cornfield chase music like on piano or mm -hmm. even on organ mm -hmm. or whatever. And it's, you know, again with the, the pipe organ and, and of course it's, it's a cool scene anyway, you're driving through the, the fields of corn and trying to, to take over that drone, which he then, you know, he takes the, like the, the piloting system or whatever out of it to, to cheat, try to use for the combines. But, you know, that's of course, just one of the first big scenes that gives you great visuals and, kind of shows you again how this guy's much more than just a farmer even though that's you know his official vocation in this world not that there's anything wrong with being just a farmer no not at all we like farmers but yeah how it's it's more of a like we've said it's a it's a necessitated role especially the, with the way that things are going that he's had to kind of step into that and had to I, I'm sure at this point where that they're at in history and NASA's kind of become this thing that's in the public view pushed off to the side. Mm -hmm. So he's had to let go of that and then do something a bit more productive and able to use the resources, not just for his family, but for the good of society. And so I think it shows a lot about the character too, how he's, he's equipped to make those choices. Yeah. Obviously he loves his family, loves his kids, loves his father-in-law but he's also willing to make certain choices for the good of a larger picture in a way. And, you know, those are, I guess we'll, we'll talk more about why, why those are driven or how those are driven and stuff. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, that first corn chase scene is really cool. And it gives you introduction to him as a dad too, which is yeah a, a big part of the film. And yeah. And then we get introduced obviously to the two characters that play his kids, yep. which are, are really, really, really well done. 
Yeah. Yeah. Obviously Murph is kind of the main, main kid that gets most of the attention, but yeah, Timothy Chalamet does a good job as, as Tom as well. You know, of course they have the conversation about Murphy's law. What's going on, Murph? Why did you and mom name me after something that's bad? Well, we didn't. Murphy's law. Murphy's law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. What it means is that whatever can happen will happen. And that sounded just fine with us. And then they, when they go back to the house, it's kind of the first sign that we see about whatever craziness is going on with the gravitational anomaly. Like all the piloting systems of the combines, they're all like hot whack going back to their house. And of course, and there was a little conversation about the ghost before the cornfield chase too, where the the lander thing got knocked off the shelf, and you know she she talks about the ghost, and oh, that's when he tells her to start like documenting it. Yeah, like using the scientific method. Yeah, I love the the scene where they they the the baseball game. You know, he's like, I think I'll punish her by taking her to the game and get her some you know candy popcorn and candy. Yeah. yeah, but the fact that it's like this tiny little like barely like a high school baseball stadium and it's the the world famous new york yankees you know obviously it's it it kind of goes to show you just how how much things have changed you know the excess of having these giant forty thousand person baseball stadiums to for people to pay money to go and watch watch a game like obviously that's not something that exists in this in this world and uh Donald, John Lithgow's character, the father-in-law, he says, you know, back in my day, we had real ball players, And I wonder, like, you know, he might be about our age. You know, if he's however old he is, if it's supposed to be like 2067. Yeah, said so he's supposed to be um, a millennial. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it'd be really interesting. You know, I, I wouldn't think of him as being, oh, yeah, he's our age. But I also forget, like, how far into the future the movie might be. But then, of course, that leads to the first depiction of this crazy dust storm which leads to them finding the the coordinates for nasa on the like the dust on the floor uh which leads to the next great score moment which is called dust that plays over like the scene where they go and track down the coordinates which leads them to the nasa headquarters or whatever you want to call it this top secret thing so then we are base introduced to tars and the brands, Professor Brand and Doctor Brand, and Bentley and Romilly. Yeah. So that yeah, the whole concept of like the wormhole and all that stuff, I find fascinating. Oh it's, yeah. You know, it, it's certainly well beyond my ability to really comprehend completely, but I feel like they do a pretty good job of explaining it in a pretty simple way in this movie. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they said that they took the concept of all these theories and the wormhole itself and put it in a way that it makes it more understandable. Even still, I walk away from the movie going like, okay, I believe <laughs> yeah. you. I get right. it. And the kind of, but yeah, but I mean the whole like, concept of like, okay, like a hole through space, especially in a, in a, a 3d atmosphere wouldn't be an actual hole. So it's more of a spherical thing. Like, all right, mm-hmm. that makes sense. I get it. Okay. But what is it again? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Okay. And you're saying it didn't just occur that somebody put it there? Like, how does that work? Yeah. You know, who Who is they? We have the idea that these 
people, was it 10 or 12 different people went through it, through the wormhole yeah. to go and evaluate the, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not validity, but the, the viability of these different planets in this other galaxy, which is who knows how far away without the wormhole. Not that it matters because there is a wormhole, but it's crazy. Like these people, I say, like they're just going out there to this planet and they're going to set up shop and then hope that maybe someday right. somebody will come and rescue them. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And they, they talk about Dr. Man being like the one that's like the best of us and the one that kind of led, led that. Of course, he turns out to be a real jerk. Right. It, um, is, it is interesting that he was like so able to inspire others to go do that along with him. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, to see what he turns out to be is like, okay, so he can talk it. Yeah. But one thing that struck me watching it this time, and I mean, I'm sure it's, uh, it's occurred to me before, but like just how quickly Cooper is like, all right, I'm doing this. Like they show up to NASA, Professor Bland- Brand explains what's happening. And then Cooper's like, okay, I mm-hmm. mean, like overnight he's going from like he's a farmer to now he's going to lead this crazy space expedition to try and save the planet which obviously it's you know it is getting pretty dire like there's not a whole lot of time to to think about it like they they have to act quickly but it's a huge decision that he's making to leave his kids and you know of course he knows he's going to be gone at least two years because that's how long it's going to take him just to get to saturn to get to the wormhole right and then beyond that you know, they have no idea. So yeah, I just, it, it just kind of struck me that time that, but, but then he, you know, he tells Murph and he's like, you know, they chose me. So like he knows that some other being or whatever it is that put this wormhole there and everything and gave them the coordinates to NASA. Like they, he, he's like, he's the chosen one. He's the only one that can really do this. Right. He knows that if, if he doesn't do it, then his kids are probably going to die anyway. Right. There's that motivation, but he also had that brief conversation with his father along the porch to where he tells him, his father-in-law tells him like, you know, I'm sorry, Coop, you didn't get to do the thing that you wanted to do before. And now for him, maybe a little bit selfishly, or at least subconsciously, like this is a chance to live out what he's always wanted to do to finally be that pilot that completes a mission or does something that's, you know, a mission that's beyond himself. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's got to be part of that, too, in his reasoning. Yeah, so, like, in this, you know, after the scene where they meet Tars for the first time, we're introduced to a whole lot of the cast, and then right away are thrown to this mission, and you have that really difficult scene where he's talking to Murph. Mm-hmm. You know, they've come back to the house, and he's having to kind of try to make things right with her, where his father-in-law understands, his oldest son supposedly understands a little bit about mm-hmm. his reasoning, but Murph just doesn't, it's not making sense to her as to why her dad would go. And he says a little bit too to, I think to Brant later, like, I can't tell my daughter like that I'm doing this to like save. Yeah. He he says, you know, one of, one of the things you realize when you become a parent is that like your, your child wants to feel safe, which kind of rules out telling them the world is ending. Right. When you're trying to explain why you're doing what you're doing. So, yeah. To me, yeah, that, that scene where he's, in her room and just really like, don't, don't make me leave like this. Don't, mm. you know, don't make me leave like this. I don't, don't mind. Don't make me leave like this. Come on, Murph. Don't make me leave like this, Murph.
love you forever. You hear me? I love you forever. And I'm coming back. Like, that's a very heart-wrenching scene. You never mm-hmm. want to, you never want to leave the house on a bad note with your kid. Right. You know, but leaving on a mission, obviously, where you're going to be gone for years, you know, and he gives her the gift of the watch, which she, you know, as a child reacts, throws it across the room. Mm-hmm. Doesn't accept it right away. Yeah. And, and then he, yeah, heads out the door because he has to, has to go save the world. Yeah. And she's, she's figured out the message from the books is says stay which she believes means you got to stay. And he of course doesn't. And then of, of course you mentioned earlier, the score over this scene, which is also called stay. It really like, it's kind of, it's this nice gentle motif, but then it like, when he leaves the house and gets in the truck and starts to pull away, then it like goes like full blast. It and yeah. it's such a powerful moment. And, you know, she runs out calling out to him and, they show him he's as he's driving away, he's crying and it immediately transitions. So, you know, you got like the countdown of the, the shuttle launch over top of that. And then that's it. Now they're in space. Yeah. I love the shots in this one too, mm-hmm. especially as he's driving away. Like you got the camera mounted on the side of the truck. So it almost feels like a launch of some sort mm-hmm. as he's like driving through the dust and she's running after him. And so you kind of looking back behind the truck and then it transitions, like you said, to that rocket launch scene. Mm-hmm. And so like, all of the expected sound effects of a rocket launch mixed with the sound and the score and the emotion of it all. Yeah. Makes it yeah a really memorable scene and transition. Yeah. And then it's a great cut to the vast expanse of space. And then the music transitions to at least later on, like, you know, when they're getting close to like Saturn and, you know, when you're, when you see the, the views of earth, you see a bunch of stars around, but there are shots of, of Saturn where there's like, it's just blackness around and the music, I feel like kind of reflects that where it's just, it's very subtle, really light piano. And it just kind of helps. It makes it feel even more void visually and musically in those moments where it's just, you know, they're hundreds of millions of miles away or whatever it is. You know, it's taken them two years to get to that point once they get to Saturn. And it's really, again, visually, musically, just very impactful. And they're obviously not fully awake for this full travel. They go down for a little bit of a sleep there. Yeah. And to which we have the first iteration, I feel like, of... It's the first time that Michael Caine's character quotes the poem, the Dylan Thomas poem, the Do Not Go Gentle yeah uh, yeah i think that's right yeah before they go down for the long nap yeah there's a video from him and he quotes the poem yeah, yeah. i think you're right which is a very yeah it's a very uh feelings evoking poem mm-hmm. that's overlaid through a lot of the different parts of the movie but hearing michael Caine say it which i think showed up in the trailer too i don't know at some parts but yeah hearing his voice over saying that those words that prior to this movie i'd never heard that poem before. Me neither. Yeah. But it really hits a lot of the different themes throughout the movie. You've mentioned the trailer a couple of times. The only thing I can specifically remember from the trailers is that they were extremely vague. They were. I remember the trailer like showing a lot of just footage of like planes taking off or it was just kind of like sort of alluding to the idea of like air travel or space travel without really saying anything about what the movie was actually about, which I'm fine with. 
Like, if I already want to see a movie, I don't need a trailer telling me a bunch of stuff and just giving away plot details. It, like, I, the the less I know, the better going into a movie. But, yeah, I, I really don't remember what, like, specific stuff from from any of the trailers was in there. I remember the score being in the trailer. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mentioned the the visual of Saturn. And I just love that, like, you know, you can see just, like, the tiny little speck of the ship flying past it. But then, you know, we get to the wormhole and this is one of those scenes where you like, you really feel like you're right in there with them. Like once they go into the wormhole and then it's like just all these like spinning, wavy, spherical looking, like it's like, you know, it looks like space, but it's, it's kind of morphed in a weird way. And you're just like flying into it. It does kind of feel like a roller coaster or something. And the music feels very tense in that scene as well. And that, so that was, that's one of the ones that specifically in the IMAX that really stands out. Mm-hmm. Like you feel like you're going into the wormhole right, right with them. I love the different sound effects of the ship, like shaking mm-hmm. and like yeah. the, that, like metallic, like parts. So like shaking around, you feel like this thing is going to break apart, Yeah, which adds, I feel like a lot to like, you said, like the tension of it too. Cause you're, you're almost, what would they be hearing? What would they be feeling? What mm-hmm. would they be going through in that? Yeah. newness of an experience of going through a black hole that no one's ever experienced before. Right. So yeah, all, all of the different visual setups throughout that little journey through the black hole. And you've got, I mean, you've also got like the mystery of like this little, like jelly, like hand reaching through the ship mm-hmm. too. At yeah, that point that's right. That, and Hathaway's character interacts with, and he feels mis- very mysterious to where you got some kind of reference or counter or anchor point to like, Oh, that's the, they that they've been talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, and of course the they is is being set up to be like some sort of like supernatural being or whatever, and it would be hard hard to imagine a more satisfying way of explaining who they are or is than just like them in the future. Because then, like, if you were, if you really tried to make it out to be like, okay, are they aliens? Totally disinterested in that personally. Are they? some other sort of divine beings or something. I don't know. It's, it would have been hard to come up with some other explanation that would have felt satisfying. Oh, sure. Than what, what they did. But of course that's, that's getting ahead to the end, but I absolutely love the Miller's planet scenes. Again, this is another one where the IMAX is like, it's just like full blast the whole time. Just this massive expanse of water as far as the eye can see. And then, you know, like those aren't mountains, they're waves and just this massive wave. And I don't know why I try to explain, but like, as long as I can remember, I've always been just like fascinated by like seeing giant waves like that. There's something like so daunting and like thrilling and mysterious about them that like, I don't know, just seeing that visual fearful. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, Yeah, it's terrifying. Like, I mean, obviously water like that is so powerful. Right. right. And just the whole, like, when they get caught up in that wave and they, they, they're up at the top and they start riding down. And of course, again, at the, the risk of sounding like a broken record, the score over this scene just <laughs> elevates it to another, another level. Yeah. And there's also the thing with like, even before the music really starts, there's like that ticking clock sound that is somehow relates to like, you know, what is it? Day and a half. 
Yeah, or yeah, like something every, like that. Well, every one it's half like, seconds a day has passed. Yeah, so like yeah. a seven seven years is if they're there for an hour or something like mm-hmm. that. So like yeah, they're relatively because it's so close to Gargantua is like ridiculous. But yeah, I just just love love this scene, all the visuals with the giant waves and everything with like Cooper's flying too. Like when they the first approach the thing with the whatever it is, the air brake trying to save fuel and stuff and then getting out of there. But then of course you also feel like he's so frustrated because they've lost so much time because you know, you're supposed to get in and get in and get out, but they wasted too much time and then the engines got flooded. So they ended up being stuck there. Like that's another, another great scene as far as Matthew McConaughey's performance, because he just realized that he just in that span of like an hour or two or whatever it ended up being, he's lost 20 plus years of his kids lives where he hasn't aged at all. So yeah, just another, another favorite scene of mine. Mm -hmm. It's another one too, where you see you're given a little bit of a, more of a view of the expandability of these robots Mm -hmm. too, because like when, as soon as Wes Bentley's character Doyle, I think goes and tells it to rescue Brant. She's just trying to look for the recording Mm -hmm. device of the other spacecraft that broke up. It just turns into this like wheel type of thing just to speed through the water. Yeah. I love that. I thought, yeah, I thought it was so cool. And the way they did that too, like that part, they didn't, they did some of it practically. Some of it had to be CGI, but they, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this almost like it's ATV that's got it like hooked to the side. That's basically like spinning it as it's driving through the water. Mm -hmm. And then they just edited out the ATV later. Uh But, but yeah, it is, it was so creative the way that they utilized the robots in these different scenes and didn't just leave them as, I don't know, you know, one dimensional as like, Mm -hmm. you're just a stiff robot that can only move like this. Like now in the future, we would come up with some kind of different creative uses for them. So, Mm -hmm. and then it's able to carry her back to like, you know, it's arms can like morph into different shapes to be like carrier and, and still run in a different right. way. I also love, you know, the, obviously all of the water there was not practical, but however, however they did that, like, obviously there was some water there that they had. And then, you know, there's visual effects to make it look like, you know, it, it goes basically infinitely as far as you can see. And then, but nothing, nothing about that scene to me looked fake at all. The giant wave and all that stuff looked looked so good and just just again the things that they were able to to achieve without just making it look super cgi was really awesome yeah so they lose doyle yeah sadly you didn't get back in time this massive tsunami wave takes him out yeah they don't get to locate miller or her recording device no and so this this planet's a dud but they have to go back so Miller or Cooper uses awesome flying skills, gets back to the spacecraft, and then they find out how long they've actually been gone mm-hmm. because of the time relativity and the gargantuan's gravitational pull being so close to the planet and wrongly tells them that they've been gone actually 23 years. I've waited years. Yeah. Which is sort of like you get back to that ship, like as a viewer, you're like, oh, wow. I thought I was thinking maybe like seven or 10, mm-hmm. but 23 is such a hard hit. For the characters, but like even for the audience, because you realize the impact that that now has on Cooper and Brand. Yeah. Whatever hope you had for Cooper seeing his kids again as kids, they just evaporated yeah. like immediately. I also, I find it fascinating what uh, 
Dr. Brand says about Miller is, you know, the fact that like whatever data they got from her would have been, you know, sent like immediately after she entered the atmosphere of her planet. And the fact that like, because of the relativity on her planet relative to them, like her crash, even though it was like 10 years ago that she went to that planet, like just happened hours ago. Like she probably only just died minutes ago. Right. Right before they got there. They were just that too late. And that's like, obviously that's just kind of mind blowing to think about. And that relativity is like, it's crazy. And I certainly don't totally understand mm-hmm. it, but um, I do think they do a good job of making those concepts fairly understandable to the point where at least they don't, even if you don't fully understand them, they don't feel confusing. Right. Know? Right. And and they explain it well after they're like, you know what? I believe you. That sounds very <laughs> yeah, smart. Right. And I, I'm going to keep going with this plot. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of sadness going around here. Cause yeah, the sadness of, you know, realizing that for Coop's character, but then, I mean, Romley's been by himself for 23 years now. What a horribly yeah. depressing thing to think about. Right. When they, when they leave, he's thinking he might have two years to continue right. researching the gravity and stuff, but then it ends up being 10 times that. Yeah. I can't imagine. And it's like, you don't have TV. I don't even have like books or anything. Right. Like what is, what is he doing that whole time? Oh, I guess he does. He, he, he does sleep some um, long sleep. You know, like yeah. yeah. He said he did a couple stretches of it, but gosh, that's horrifying right. to imagine. To eventually they said to a point, I just figured you weren't coming back. Yeah. Like, so at one point he just resigned it to like, it's just me until I die. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. That's horrible. Depressing to think about. And it's as much as man ends up being a big jerk. It, it is understandable why he would do what he did. Like to, to be at the point where you have no hope, you are stuck on this horrible place for the rest until you, you die. Right. And you know, but I, I, of course it's impossible to try and like put yourself in, in their shoes, but I would just be like, all right, I'm just going to put myself in the sleeping chamber and just, that's it. Just going to sleep without trying to bring other people to my planet and putting them at risk and whatever. But obviously that's where he just, he was kind of selfish, but a little bit, yeah. After they get back, you know, from Miller's planet and all this time has passed, this is where we get the scene where Matthew or Coop is, is seeing 23 years worth of messages from Tom really, you know, not really from Murph except at the end, but you know, Tom, he goes from, he's graduated high school and now it's Casey Affleck and he's got a baby. And then sadly the baby dies and then grandpa died. And then he's like, you know, his wife Lois is like, she, she says, I need to let you go. So I'm letting you go. I hope you're at peace. And that's just so sad to think like, you know, he's to be sending those messages out for so long and not ever getting a response. And to just be thinking like, yeah, these messages, like no one's ever seeing them. Right. And of course for a while he was right. They weren't seeing the messages because there was such a short amount of time that they were gone from the ship, but you know, in, in earth time over 20 years. But yeah, that that's a really, really sad. And obviously, you know, Coop watching it is, is just weeping. And then he gets the, the message from Murph though, too, at the very end. And it's about how she's now at the age that he was when he left. 
You once told me that when you came back, we might be the same age. So she finally, finally sends him a message after avoiding it for all those years. Yeah, I love how that's your first window to Murph. Older Murph, at least. Mm -hmm. And then you find out that that little comment that Michael Caine's character made about, like, helping her along, at least, like, in her education a little bit. Yeah, fanning the flame. Fanning the flame, yeah. Came true, you know, because she ends up working with him at the NASA facility. Yeah. Trying to figure out the whole time equation and stuff. Just commenting on this, I I really feel, we both feel like the, the casting of her as the older Murph was very well done. Yeah. Lining up those two, the younger actress and her, mm-hmm. was like spot on. Yeah. Really. And would say the same for the, for Tom too. For, yes. You know, Casey Affleck being a very convincing older version of Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Yeah. They did. Like, we could talk about the casting as much as we want to, but right. for these two particular roles, the older versions and the younger versions really cast very well against each other along with each other. And mm-hmm. Yeah. So it kind of gives you, there's this view of like, obviously there's the people out in space through the wormhole who are trying to do their thing. But now there's all these people at NASA who are still working to kind of solve this problem. And again, that Jessica Chastain was a great choice of casting there. Yeah. But it adds a little bit more to the tension of what's going on. Like there's a, there's an imperative here of like, there's a time crunch, like this problem has to be solved. And it's not just going to be solved by finding the planet because then how do we get people there is, has been their question right? since the beginning of Coop finding out about the project is like, okay, they're still trying to answer that question and they haven't done it in 23 years. Yeah. Yeah. Brand is obviously much older now. He's in a wheelchair and she's been trying to help him figure it out. And she realizes something that like, you know, that he's something about his approach to the equation is not making sense. And he just kind of avoids talking about it, which is the first time you kind of get a sense of like something's going on there. Something's not right. Yeah. yeah. And then we get, you know, we've, we've mentioned Dr. Man, Matt Damon's character a couple of times. And now we're at the point where they're actually going to his, his planet. And of course they have the kind of the argument before that. Where the it's love like, argument. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we have enough resources to go to one. We can go to man's or we can go to Edmund's. You know, the data looks promising for both. And because Coop has figured out that Dr. Brand is in love with Edmonds, he chooses for them to go to Dr. Mann's, or yeah, Dr. Mann's planet. Um, well, also him using the logic too of like, you've already told me that man was like the smartest of all the scientists. So yeah. like, why are you choosing against that as mm-hmm. a scientist? Yeah. And she can only answer with the whole love argument. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. I, I, I get how sometimes there's a bit of negativity about that, but... So it's kind of hinting at this idea that, you know, and from the future, when we're talking about these, dement- these the quote-unquote they, these beings in the future that have put the wormhole, that have the ability to manipulate space and time, that, uh, you know, love is something that can actually transcend dimensions of time and space being what kind of ends up, you know, helping them figure everything out at the end. Maybe we should trust that even if we can't understand it yet. Yeah. So we're on this ice planet that just looks like a miserable place to be. But according to Dr. Man, it's, it's looking good. So obviously, you know, that's the scene where, where he first wakes up and it just starts, you know, he just breaks down and starts weeping because like he hasn't seen a human face in 10 years or well, no, it was 10 years when they left. So now it's 
you know, I mean, depending on what relativity is like on his planet, although they said that man's planet was 80% of Earth's gravity. So it must not be close enough to Gargantua where the relativity thing is like super strong. So right. for him, it might've been 30 years since he's seen another person. Although he hasn't aged 30 years, I don't think. No, so, no, no. I guess probably hasn't been as long for him. But either way, it's been a long time since he, he's, seen, he's seen another human being. So it is understandable, you know, like I said earlier, for him to, for the, the kind of despair you might feel in that situation to lead to his actions, but it still doesn't excuse his no. actions. No, especially calling a rescue mission to just save himself. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, I don't say villain-like, but... It definitely doesn't portray him in a good light. He's definitely looking out for number one. Yeah. And and I would say, like, okay, I understand, like, his motives were not great for doing what he did. But why go through the whole ruse of, like, walking Coop so far away and, like, get a, getting rid of his, his transmitter and the whole fight and trying to leave him to die? Like, why not just admit to them when they get there, hey, I'm glad you're here. And sorry to tell you, but this planet is a dud. I faked the data just so that you would come and rescue me. Like they're going to be upset, but they wouldn't leave him there. If he was just admitted about it, like, thing, just yeah. tell them what you did and they'll just take you with them. I mean, unless it's an issue of like resources or something to have another person on the ship, but that can't be that. Cause they've already had two people. Well, one person at that point die, you know, of course, Romilly ends up dying um, on man's planet but anyway it's just like this feels like a lot of trouble to go to instead of just being like hey here's what happened sorry i lied but since you're here can i get a ride and they'd probably be like i kind of hate your guts right now but i'm not going to leave you here to die so yeah sure hop in let's <laughs> you, go you think yeah let's get off this miserable ice planet where the air is ammonia and it's really really cold and the days are 67 hours long and the nights are 67 hours long and there's no sun I love how in any of that stuff that he's telling them about the planet, like none of them are like, you know what? I don't know if this sounds like the best for humans. Right. Like, he's like on the surface and they're like, there's a surface. They just buy into his whole right. lie. <laughs> 67 hours of day where it's extremely cold and yeah. night where it's extremely cold. Like, like, I don't know if your transmitter transmitted correctly. Right. And it, I'm just thinking like, yeah, okay. I think I'll take, I'll just, I'd rather die. Let's then see try to make a Edmonds, new home yeah. on this miserable ice planet. No, thanks. Yeah. I'm good. But he's also a catalyst too, announcing to them. And that's where on the planet, they find out that like Dr. Brandt, the older Dr. Brandt didn't actually yeah. intend to solve anything. Right. Like he sent them there knowing they're not coming back, mm -hmm. even his own daughter. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's not that he didn't intend to solve anything. It's that he did solve it and it just found it it wasn't going to work it's, yeah because they couldn't it's not viable. you know resolve whatever quantum mechanics with gravitation i don't know that's yeah a lot of physics jargon but yeah he on his deathbed he admits that to murph that he figured it out and he lied so basically plan a was never viable and it's going to be plan b but yeah but man knew this as well man yeah man knew he went but, fully knowing and but Dr. Brand didn't, which I, I couldn't remember. Like I, I was kind of thinking that she did know, but she clearly didn't. And then, you know, of course they, they find out from Murph that Dr. Brand is or professor Brand has died and he was lying. But yeah, this, this is where we, we see man kind of start to turn. Cause he's just like, you know, yeah, sorry. Plan A was, was never viable, but I don't know. Yeah. 
So from the time when man is kind of revealed to be, you know, lying and he starts to, to try to kill Coop, like the score again, I, we told you this would happen. We're going to talk about the score in every scene, but this is another big pipe organ scene that also has got a lot of great like piano too. Um, that just like really builds the tension for this whole scene, you know, like Coop is struggling cause he's got a crack in his helmet and when they go and rescue him, but then, you know, Romley unfortunately gets killed when Kip explodes when he's trying to get in because they find out that, you know, the data was just all made up and nothing makes sense. I could not save him. But then of course, Tars who was in there, he survives, uh, somehow. Um, but then they're able to, to get away, but, man has commandeered the whatever it's called the ranger the ranger you know, they, yeah. they have to the, there's rangers and landers and whatever from the endurance and uh you know he goes up there and of course when we get the the big docking failure to dock scene i should say yeah he's just so desperate and you can tell too because like he's mm-hmm. like not listening to any of their reasoning he, yep. he claims that they're lying they're not telling the truth and i love that like he's trying to like convince them of his side of things mm-hmm. and he just so there's that it's not funny but when he goes to the whole like there's a moment and then <laughs> there is a moment it's like he's he's like monologuing like a he's villain trying, does. yeah he's trying yeah. to like yeah I'm you don't understand you i'm smarter say. than you yeah and he clearly wasn't smarter than them yeah it is you know you say like it's funny but it's not but it is like it's a satisfying conclusion for his character Right for the the guy he turns out to be, and he he gets what he deserves essentially because he's trying to ditch all these other people to die when he was literally feeling the desperation in a similar situation and like you know I, again it's like why can't why can't they all just leave together even even despite what he did but right. anyway yeah he's he was an idiot it couldn't happen that way he was a coward he was foolish very cowardly which of course by the way the name of the the track for that scene in the score is coward coward yeah don't judge me cooper but it brings us to another visually stunning scene that has as many times as we want to mention this an amazing score yes when coop figures out or or takes the risk of saying like even though this because of the explosion this station is spinning uncontrollably i'm i can still dock with this thing mm-hmm. i can do this yeah, matches the spin of the ship to to the spin of well the bigger ship and and manages to to get it done brilliantly. And yeah, another another scene where the 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 score is just like it just you feel that tension mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just you know visually the the spinning and it's it's crazy. Yeah, I love how they're just going through all those G's and. Brant passes out and mm. Coop is like almost passed out, but he's yeah. like trying to hold on for dear life and <laughs> just like it together somehow. Yeah. But they, I, yeah, he, McConaughey sells it, you know, mm-hmm. you could like go like, all right, you need to act like you're going through a lot of like gravitational pulls. Like, yeah. Okay. I can pretend like he really like does. He really yeah. sells it really well, but they do, they do end up docking and now they've got to figure out like what to do next. And to him, like the only other option is to, he wants to go home, mm-hmm. but Edmund's planet is still an option. Yeah. They just don't have the, what was it? The fuel resources yeah. to be able to get there. Yeah. And, you know, there was a small scene before that, uh, Tars was talking to 
No, it was, well, it was Romilly was talking to Coop about like, you know, if we could maybe what if we could drop a probe into the black hole and see if we can get any data back from it. Right. So that leads to, you know, them planning on doing that with TARS. But then, you know, of course, what Dr. Brand doesn't know is that Coop is going to do it himself so that she can make it to Edmund's planet with, you know, using, doing like the slingshot orbit around Gargantuan. the black hole and yep. to, to get to Edmund's. Um, so yeah. And that's how we get this, this great scene where he, he drops into the black hole, which, you know, the, again, the visuals of the black hole itself are, are awesome. You know, it took what, like a hundred hours to render every frame or something. And they put all this yeah, data exactly. from yeah. the research of black holes and, and they were like, yeah, this is like the most realistic depiction we've ever had of a black hole. And it's from like, you know, the scientists and everything. So it was really cool. Um, it was really almost like a scientific breakthrough, just trying to make the the visuals of the black hole for this movie. And then, uh, you know, I know you had mentioned that one of your favorite scenes is is the scene where he falls, is falling into the, the black hole once he gets past the, like the event horizon. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's, it's one too that like you feel... I didn't feel it watching at home, but feeling it in IMAX is so different. Mm-hmm. And it's combined with the score and it's combined with the sound is what really brings out the intensity of that scene. But watching it in the IMAX, it feels like you're on like a roller coaster that you can't get off of. Yeah. Because he drops through and you're like, all right, here we go. We got some good visuals. Because it's like, in some parts of it, there are no score. It's just kind of quiet. Yeah, I think it's, I th- yeah, I don't think there's any score. It's just like the sound effects of like, you know, sounds yeah. like, like kind of wind because he's dropping quickly. And then the ship like shaking. Yeah. And then the different like things that he's encountering. It's almost like there's like a particle dust that mm-hmm. he's like trying to go through. Yeah. And then because of the G force, like he passes out. Right. And then as he's kind of coming to, he's hearing eject, eject, eject. Yeah. And he finally does. And you're like, I mean, like, as a, like, a viewer and knowing, like, where he's at, you're like, oh, shoot, like, you're ejecting in a black hole. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's not, like, a good option at all. Yeah. And he does, and as soon as he does, like, you know, I don't know if this is McConaughey doing it or if this is, like, post-production, but, like, the way they make his voice and his breath, like, really, like, shaky, you know, and, and you can tell, like, even as brave as his character is, he's also very, like, this is a very anxiety-inducing situation now. Like, mm-hmm. I'm in totally uncharted really literally uncharted territory oh yeah and then and to be by yourself yeah in and, that darkness and, and then some, just yeah. dropping yeah like you know obviously because it's a movie like you can see what's going on around him but you can imagine there would also be no light right for him to even see mm-hmm. until he sees like underneath his feet he's heading towards something mm-hmm. and it just like rushes at him and yeah. this yeah this particular part of the scene is where it really stands out to me because you feel like the oh shoot moment going mm-hmm. through his head and like right. I have no idea I have no idea what he's encountering in here mm-hmm. and ends up being just like a really sweet depiction of, of kind of like time and, and a way to like physically view time. And I don't know if any of this is like based in any kind of like theoretical research and how they visually portrayed this Tesseract, but him falling through it, yeah, is a is a really how they came and brought that all together with the score and the visuals and whatever set they had to use. I imagine he's on some kind of a harness or something, but Mm -hmm. you still feel it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It feels like you're falling right there with him. And then, you know, we get this next sequence of events is where he's figuring out 
that he was Murph's ghost all along. And then adult Murph has finally gone back to her childhood bedroom. Seems like probably for the first time in, in a long time. And she's, she's trying to figure it out now that she knows that professor brand was lying or had already solved the equation. It wasn't working. Now she's like, all right, now we gotta, like, like it's up to me. I got to try to figure this out. Like she's not ready to give up. So she goes back to her room to figure out, you know, because she knows it's this gravitational anomaly. And then she starts, she figures out that Coop was her ghost and, uh, which doesn't, you know, necessarily solve everything yet. And then Cooper, or sorry, Tars is able to get back in touch with Cooper. And, you know, they, that's what they kind of have this conversation that where Cooper has this epiphany that he is, they, you know, he's the one that like, Oh yeah, let's transmit or, you know, do the, the thing with the NASA coordinates and sending the, the message for stay, you know, and all that stuff. And then, you know, he kind of figures out the, the love thing about love being the thing that transcends dimensions. Like his love for Murph is really the, the main impetus behind everything that's happening. Then finally he's able to, to get, you know, TARS to transmit the data from, from inside the black hole via Morse code. And he's able to do that, to, to do that with the watch, you know, through the, whatever, like the, the barrier that is sort of manipulatable and, but not completely because he can't like go through it, but he can hit it and knock the books off the shelf and bend the lines to make the, the dust, you know, show the coordinates and then to, you know, manipulate the second hand on the watch to show the, the data. Then that's, that's how Murph ended up saving the world. Yeah. And then, yeah, another another reference from Taurus to they, the, what I think calls them bulk beings, mm-hmm. you know, are closing the Tesseract, which eventually launches Taurus and Cooper out of there to where they're now just plummeting through space or just kind of floating at the edge of Saturn through space. And eventually they get picked up by modern day Rangers. Mm-hmm. But before that, isn't it, it's after the Tesseract that Coop is in the, the place where he's, it, they show that he was the hand that was like reaching like in this, the wormhole scene. Correct. Yes. That, as he's kind of passing through the rest of the wormhole. Yeah, Dr. Brand, uh, you know, was the one reaching out and, or he's the one reaching out to her as they pass through the wormhole the first time. Right. So him again, that's like whether it's the, they or the future human race or whatever is found a way to kind of like transcend through time and reach through it a little bit. And they either allowed him to do that or he'd figured out how to do that. But yeah, he reaches through and he's the handshake that, that, uh, Brand gets. Yeah. And Hathaway's Brand gets as they're traveling through the black hole for the first time. And yeah. So then, yeah, then he is launched out of the black hole and picked up by these Rangers and brought into Cooper Station. Yeah. And at first is like, he thinks they named it after him. And they're like, oh, we didn't name it after you. Name it after your daughter, Murphy Cooper. And he's like, she's still alive and she's been in hypersleep for two years because she's coming to Saturn, not to the planet itself, but coming to, to where they're at. To um, see him, yeah. Yeah, because they're on their way to the to the wormhole to go to the new planet. Um, but then, yeah, he he has this brief conversation with Murph 
where, you know, they kind of have a, a little kind of a sweet reunion where, you know, she's like, I knew you'd come back and nobody believed me, but you know, you were my ghost. And, but then she's like, you shouldn't have to watch me die. So you should go. Yeah. I've so, got like a full on family now. Yeah. I've kids and kids great grandkids. And, yeah. 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 Which is really, to me, like out of all the other scenes that are emotionally hitting in the movie, like this is the saddest one. It, yeah. Him like the whole time just wanting to get back to his kids. Mm -hmm. And finally he does. And it's the just the briefest of moments of her to say like, yeah, you know what? I, I'm glad we did this, but I've got a family now and you've been gone for so long. Yeah. So go live your life now, yeah. I guess. And what does she say to him? Like, I always knew you'd come back. And, you know, he says, like, how? And she said, my daddy promised me. Mm -hmm. Like, that's really sad. Yeah. I'm glad you had faith that whole time that he would. But how, what a hard-hitting comment for him to feel like. Right. Yeah, I, I did. And look where it got me. Right. And he just walks out. How many uh, How many 90-year-olds get to talk with their parent on their deathbed yeah <laughs> and tell them like don't stay around for this like you shouldn't have to see this but he's 124 years old now yeah hasn't aged you know more than just maybe a few years i think right as they're getting ready to go into the black hole he and tars they say it's gonna be like 51 years i think that that it'll, it'll cost them 51 years going through the black hole okay so that's how much time has passed from then to to when he's, you know, comes out the other side and is, is rescued by the space station. The one thing I, I don't understand about that, I guess, then is like, wouldn't, um, wouldn't Dr. Brand be that much older too? The like Anne Hathaway's that, brand? Yeah. Like now that she's on Edmund's planet, um, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't know what the relativity is like on Edmund's planet, but obviously it's not going to be nothing's going to be as significant as the relativity going in the black hole. So if it costs him 50, 51 years going into the black hole, then I would think Edmonds would have also aged significantly or sorry, not Edmonds brand on Edmonds planet. So like now it's like he, he's talked to Murph and he's like, all right, I'm going to go, going to go see brand. But I would think that she would have gotten a lot older too. You'd think, but I uh, never really yeah. thought of that before. And again, I don't know how far, Edmund's planet was from Gargantuan. Yeah. And all that. But, and especially with him having to, he's got to, in order to get there, he's got to go through the black hole again. And so he's going to experience the, the wormhole. Some, yeah. 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 What did I say? Black hole. Wormhole. wormhole. Black hole. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's on the, he's on the Saturn side. So yeah, he'll go through the wormhole. And more time will pass. I don't think the wormhole costs any time though. Not like a relativity thing. None. I don't think so. I would have to ask Kip Thorne. I don't know much about it. <laughs> yeah. We should, we should get him on. <laughs> yeah. This would be a good episode to have him it on. It would. He could explain all these things. And we would just nod our heads just like we do with a movie. Like, yes. Yeah. That sounds very smart. I get it. <laughs> yeah. We got some, again, great score as he's going back through, as he commandeers a ranger and he oh, goes yes. back through. With and it her, just shows. What's that? With her voiceover, she like, what she, you know, she's still talking to him. Murph. Yeah, yeah, about Old Murph, yeah. brand and, and all that. She's probably getting down, getting ready for the take a big nap. Yeah. Which, yeah. But you can see they give you at least like a hint of what she's found on that planet. Yeah. Um, and how habitable it is. And she's kind of setting up. She's almost like getting prepped for plan B. Yeah. You know, not knowing what's actually coming. 
So hopefully he like, you know, they don't see anything, but hopefully he gets there enough time to kind of tell her like the hope that's had and the things that are coming. And, but yeah, I thought the way that they ended this movie with almost, almost inception, like, you know, like we're not going to tell you everything. Yeah. Kind of figure out for yourself. How does this end? Just a little bit of a hint. Yeah. Just a little bit of like, okay, maybe this will be successful. Mm -hmm. It's a, I do feel like it's a, it's a hopeful ending. Yeah. To me. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit sad, but also hopeful. Yes. Yeah. You don't know how they're going to, how him and uh, Brant reunite and how that all goes. And Mm -hmm. you don't know how they're going to get this giant space station through the black hole and all that kind of stuff. But you know, they figured it out. Yeah. They've done the equations. They know. Yeah. I would have been interested to see that. Yeah. Me too. There'd have been a lot. There's, there's a lot like with some of these movies sometimes, especially with Nolan, like I would have loved to have seen more ending. Right. uh, I get it. I get yeah, it. same here. And I wonder, uh, you know, they show obviously like Brand is on Edmund's planet and she has buried him. But like, I wonder how long would he have been dead for at that point? Right. Like, did she even get to see him a little bit? I, yeah, I don't think so. I, I mean, like she buried I him right away. He could have been like an old man, but obviously he, he did a lot. Like, you know, you get a, that glimpse of like all this stuff, like kind of like a base camp that's been set up. Like that had to have been all him while he was waiting on possible rescue. Could have been some her. That's what I always wondered too. When I saw that base camp, like, was that all him setting it up or did she do some of that? I feel like it must've been him. Cause he's, he's been there a long time. Right. And it's because it was actually a habitable planet, you know, he's been like getting to work on doing stuff, getting ready. Yeah. And, but then probably unfortunately too much time passed. I don't know. I suppose it maybe he could have been alive when she got there, but he might've been really old or something. I don't know. I'd have right. to try to like look back at some of the timeline stuff to try and figure that out. But I'm sure somebody online has already done it. Just <laughs> yeah. take a little Googling yeah. to figure that stuff out. But. Be that as it may, as it stands, as, as the ending stands, it has a very good ending, a very satisfying ending. Yeah. And it, it leaves you with a lot of questions, but not questions that need to be answered, so to speak, in order for the plot to be driven forward or to right. be settled. Cool. Yeah, the the mission of the movie was accomplished. Yes. Yeah. Cooper did his thing. He came back, as he promised, got to see Murph before she dies. Yeah. And they saved humanity. And they did. Probably. As far as we know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they created massive space stations in order to save it, so right. it worked out. But, man, so it is hard, like, after seeing a movie like this in IMAX to then know that, like, hey, the next time I see this, it might just be at home. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't watch it again until I can see it on IMAX again. Mm-hmm. Because just, the like we said, the, the noise, the sound, the the score... And the grandeur of all these different shots intended to be shot and viewed in the IMAX setting. Like, yeah. why, if you don't have to, why do it that way? Yeah. Why do it anywhere else? Like, yeah, I wish, I wish I could know that like, oh yeah, like once a year or even just like once every couple of years, the IMAX theater is going to show Interstellar. Right. And like, I'll be there every time. Well, so far uh, it's been once every three years, right? So yeah. That's um, not a bad track. Record. Yeah. I do remember the last time I watched watched interstellar um i had gotten like the 4k blu-ray and like a 4k blu-ray player and watched it and like it was 
I think it was a night I was like home alone. So like the kids weren't here. So I could watch it extremely loud. I just turned the sound, like just blasted it. Cause like, this is how this movie is meant to be watched. And it was great. Um, still, you know, not quite to the level of seeing it, you know, in the IMAX, but it was still like, it was, it was a good experience. And I know that like Christopher Nolan puts a lot of work and effort into making the, the, you know, the home version of his films as high quality as possible as far yeah, as like the, the formatting and all the sound, like whatever, like conversions or things that have to be done to take it from the theatrical version to the at home version. He makes sure that there is like the highest quality possible. And, you know, I, I do appreciate that effort because unfortunately we can't just go and see his movies on an IMAX screen whenever we want to. Right. So, but yeah, this is one that, uh, for, for, for you out there listening, I hope you've seen the movie at least once because otherwise now it's been spoiled greatly for you. Right. But watch this movie on an IMAX screen. If you ever get the chance, like a true IMAX, it will say like IMAX 70 millimeter. It is absolutely worth, worth it. And in the meantime, find the soundtrack on Spotify or wherever and give it a listen because it is one of the best. It is. My favorite film score of all time. All time. All time. Wow. Yep. All time. Yes, sir. I was just quoting another favorite movie of ours. But if you do happen to want to stream this movie before we actually release this episode, which obviously will give you a bit of a warning as to when the episode's coming, it's currently on Prime. And if you have Paramount Plus, it's on there as well. So get out there and see it. Or maybe it's coming to an IMAX screen near you. Who knows? It's worth looking. It is worth looking. It's definitely worth it to to get out there and have that experience. It's it's a obviously not once in a lifetime because it's what your second time. Second time. My yeah. second time seeing an IMAX. It comes around, so yeah. Get out there, see an IMAX if you can. But if you can't, find it on streaming. I'm glad we did this. Yeah, I'm really yeah. This glad was we did this. This is fun. Recording in the same room together. Yeah. Seeing, rewatching the movie together before yeah. talking about it. It's like the future of this podcast. Yeah. yeah I wish we could do often. it like this more often. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. Someday. Well, but until we can. I am glad that you're here with me. And we are glad that you are here with us. Here at the end of this podcast. <laughs>